This morning's reading is taken from 2 Peter, verses 3 to 18, and it can page on, found on page 1224 of the Bibles. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed that it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to the Lord. As we stand, we pray. Lord Jesus, that great day, and we shall lay our crowns before you. How we long for it. For those of us who find our hearts cold and unmoved, how we long to long for it. Lord Jesus, please would you meet us here and now. Meet us in your word as you speak to us in the voice of your apostle Peter. So your voice might stir our hearts to faith, from faith to love, from love to obedience. And in all this, we may be truly ready for you when you end history. And bring in that great day. Lord Jesus, meet with us now, we pray. Amen. Well, do be seated. And uh, you get the passage open that Linda read for us. uh, Page 1224 of the Church Bibles. We come to the end this morning of our series in Peter's second letter. Like I know some others of you, I've been uh, privileged this week to be away for a week's holiday uh, with uh, the family and uh, my in-laws. And uh, so we've had lots of meals together, lots of uh, different conversations. And uh, one of the days uh, we were having uh, a meal together, uh, the conversation turned to uh, the Yellowstone uh, National Park. There it is on the picture, in case you're wondering where it was, uh, where it was and in particular the Yellowstone Supervolcano. Uh, you may know that there are uh, predictions periodically that uh, this uh, supervolcano is due to erupt uh, imminently. 
and uh, lots of charts will be pr- uh, printed. Uh, worthy quotes will be given uh, by those who claim to know these things. Now, the facts are the last super eruption, around a thousand cubic kilometers of rock, uh, dust and ash spewed forth, uh, covered a vast uh, area. It's one of those numbers that really doesn't make any sense to us. It's just gargantuan. So the thought that this might happen again and the speculation that it might do so, that it's overdue, uh, is one of those conversations that gets people's hearts and imaginations racing. Although when you dig into it a little bit, uh, it does seem that such speculation is uh, almost always dampened by official sources. The reality is that nobody really knows. It could well be thousands of years before the thing utters another peep. And uh, the wilder websites uh, predict the end of the world, but the sober scientists are rather more cautious. Uh, Nevertheless, it was just one of those conversations uh, that hints at that underlying anxiety that all of us have in living in an uncertain world. Just as a a dormant or currently dormant volcano occasionally issues a little puff of smoke or there'll be a geyser over here or a hot spring there, just to remind you that there is great power beneath that may one day unexpectedly be unleashed. So we all of us live in a world whose future in human terms is uncertain. Long gone is the old modernist arrogance that human progress was inevitable and that we were going to build for ourselves a utopia fueled by grand inventions and the fruits of Western science. It didn't really survive the First World War, uh, that utopian vision. But now the prospect of nuclear-powered terrorism uh, coming out of failed states or global climate change or Add another issue of your own uh, liking. Those things have rocked any shared sense of a safe and improving future to hand on to our children. On a bigger scale still, the scientists tell us uh, that one day the cosmos will implode. As a happy thought. uh, Perhaps not for 10 billion years, but our sun will go out before then anyway. Uh, And so the very nature of the universe is not stable. And so those underlying anxieties that rumble along and that the uh, tabloid newspapers every now exploit with a Yellowstone is about to explode story, uh, they find a resonant note in us. We know we have no eternal future here on this terrestrial ball in this current age. And humanity's behavior seems determined to shorten the time that we do have. Well, as I say, did you come to church this morning to be cheered up? If you did, I've probably not done very well so far. But that is the world in which we live, and that underlying sense of anxiety that the present order and peace is really going to be quite short-lived, whether because of social chaos or some natural disaster uh, or something coming from outside, uh, we fear the future. Well, Peter addresses us in those fears, uh, because the people of his day were no different. And the first thing he says to us uh, is that the day of God is coming. Those underlying fears uh, do reflect an eternal reality. This world is time-limited, and it will come to a spectacular end. Now, the good news is that neither Yellowstone nor global warming nor terrorism will end our world. God will end our world. And Peter writes of that future, our future, our planet's future, the future of the whole created order. 
Who knows what means God might use to begin to bring about that day? Peter doesn't speculate, and it doesn't do us any good to do so either. The point is, those underlying anxieties are met in the Bible, not with an assurance that everything will go on as it always has. That's been the message of the false teachers that Peter has called out uh, in his letter, and particularly in the first part of chapter 3. No, the message of the Bible is, yes, everything will end catastrophically and with utter finality. Uh, Just looking back to verse 10 to set the scene fully, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that is, unexpectedly. Heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Verse 11 at the start of our passage, since everything will be destroyed in this way. And then halfway through verse 12, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. It is a terrifying vision of the future. But again, notice that the author of this destruction is not man or merely the impersonal created order. It is God. It is the day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the day of God, his father, both phrases are used by Peter here that are being, that is being described. And not only will it mean the destruction of all creation, but the destruction of those people who are alienated from their creator. We saw that back in verse 7 of this chapter. Some of you were looking at this last Sunday where Peter introduces the theme into the chapter. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, he says, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So everything will be destroyed and those who've resisted the creator God as he's come to us in Jesus Christ will themselves on that day be destroyed. In the Bible's storyline, it was our sin that brought God's curse not only onto us but onto the whole created order a curse that will be unleashed on that final day. Again, if you've come to church to be cheered up, we're still not doing terribly well. Can I encourage you to hang on in there for a few minutes? Because Peter writes these words so that in the light of that day, we might live lives that are full of joy and purpose. Well, let's follow his argument and see how he gets there. The first thing he says to us uh, by implication is that we mustn't waste our anxiety on merely human or natural terrors. Don't spend your lives worrying about whether Yellowstone will erupt or whether the terrorists will come uh, or whether global warming will finally uh, win the day, the ice caps will melt, the water will rise and Hartford will disappear under a new sea. Don't waste your worries on any small things like that. It's very striking, isn't it? Because that's what everyone around us spends their time worrying about. No, everything will be destroyed by fire. And the agent of that destruction will be God. So make sure that the one you fear is him. Not any of the small things uh, in in the uh, perspective of history and of the cosmos uh, that we may look around and that fill our newspapers and our media. No, to worry about those things as our ultimate fear is foolishness. God has said there is something greater to prepare for. And this chapter in the Bible tells us how to be ready for that day. And if we're ready for that day, the day of God, the day when Christ comes, well then frankly the Lord will help us on all those other small things like supervolcanoes and terrorism and global warming. Because in the end, if he gets us through this day, well, then that really is all that matters. 
So Peter asks uh, the question, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of people are ready for the destruction that will come on the day of judgment? What kind of people will go on to populate the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness? And he gives four answers in these verses. A confident people, a holy people, a listening people, and a growing people. I'll look at all those in turn this morning and see what Peter uh, means. But remember, he's answering this one big question. Since God's judgment is coming... What kind of people ought you to be so that you're ready when it comes and that you will be among those, not who are destroyed on that day, but who are welcomed home into the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the first thing he says is that we look forward to the day of God with confidence, not with fear. Three times in this short passage, Peter uses the same verb, uh, verb translated rightly here as look forward. Look at verse 12. You look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Verse 13, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 14, since you are looking forward to this. This is something that the unbeliever will find very strange. Uh, We've talked about all those terrors that give us that collective sense of anxiety. And the Christian says the greatest of all, we're looking forward to because it's going to be a fantastic day. Why does he say that? Well, let me borrow from some words of Paul as Peter encourages us in this passage to do. Uh, Paul says in his last letter on death row, uh, when uh, the end of his earthly life is imminent, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We sang it in that famous hymn just before the sermon. It's the same thought here. Paul is looking forward to the day of judgment. Peter says we can look forward to the day of judgment because when that day comes, it will be our homecoming. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ on that day, it will be a day not of destruction but of renewal, not of uh, the final end of everything that matters, but our entrance into the only thing that lasts, the kingdom of God, that nothing will ever destroy. It will not bring for God's people destruction, but it will bring blessing. It will not be consumed in the fires of the ungodly. We will be brought into God's renewed cosmos, the home of righteousness. So how do we come into that? How does that properly become our hope? Peter uses that word righteousness uh, as describing what it is to be in this new heaven and new earth. He's used the word a few times in this letter. Just look at the first one, at the first verse of the letter. uh, To those who the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See, righteousness properly only belongs to God. We are not righteous. We are full of sin and wickedness. It's the nature of living this side of the fall of man. But God in his righteousness has so acted in history in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. That when we put our trust in him, when we have a faith in him that is as precious as the apostles, because it rests on the one who is most precious of all, God's own son, Jesus Christ. And we have in abundance grace, God's love in our lives, forgiving all our sins. We have peace with our maker because Christ's death has stood in our place to take all the punishment 
All the destructive force of God's anger has been neutralized by Jesus Christ at the cross. So when Peter says we're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, he means the home of Jesus Christ, a home of peace and grace, a home that is fit, in other words, for all those who have said, Lord, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. Please will you forgive me because Jesus died for me. That's how we have a home in the new heaven and the new earth. That's how the day of God uh, brings joy and a present confidence because Christ has done it all. And if you're here this morning as someone who's not sure whether that day will be good news for you or not, then simply hear Peter's word. Come to Christ and you will find grace and truth in abundance, more than enough for you. More than enough to secure your place in this new heaven and new earth. More than enough to bring you forgiven and forever into God's everlasting kingdom. And for us who do trust in Christ, hear that first note. And let it be a note of our witness as well. We are confident, not because it depends on us, that would be arrogance. We're confident because it depends on his grace and mercy that that day will bring a great homecoming. And when we're weary and we're discouraged and we're wondering if Christian faith is worth it, lift your eyes to what is coming and know that the inheritance we have is a joyful and wonderful thing, as Peter says in the beginning of his first letter. Peter says in this extraordinary language, we look forward to the day of God and even speed its coming. That's a remarkable uh, phrase to use. We mustn't overread it. Uh, God's actions are never dependent uh, ultimately on ours. And yet the Bible reveals a God who uh, teaches us to pray and who then responds to our prayers and changes things because we pray. Well, don't we pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And whenever we pray, your kingdom come, we mean this day, the day of God to come. Jesus said as well uh, that the kingdom would not come until the gospel had been preached to all nations. So when we confidently look forward to the day of God, uh, what that means is that in our joy we want others to share in that joyful hope for themselves. And we pray, Lord, bring your kingdom now. And we tell others uh, that the church may grow, that the gospel may go to all nations. And then again, the kingdom may come. One of the joys of holiday is reading, and never as much as one would like. Uh, that's the joy of having four small children, uh, but a little reading. And uh, one of the books I read this week was a, a biography of Patrick, uh, St. Patrick, the uh, apostle to the Irish. He'd never been more than a character from a stained glass window. But reading a biography of him, uh, rooted in his own writings, revealed a man who uh, heard this message. He was motivated uh, to resist the uh, cold, uh, evangelistically uh, uh, opposed hierarchy of the British church in the fourth century. Uh, he, He resisted them in order to go across the water to Ireland because he wanted the day of God to come. And he knew that unless the gospel was preached to the Irish as one of the then unreached nations, it wouldn't come. And so for him, he went against great resistance locally. And he went as a man of great humility and great faith because he was longing for the day of God. His ministry led in God's providence to the conversion of the Irish people. 
And again and again in church history, it's been those who've had this day at the forefront of their minds who've done most useful work for the Lord in terms of evangelism and progress in all sorts of ways. So we look forward to the day of the Lord, and that will stir our prayers. It will fuel our evangelism. It will lead us to love our neighbors now in the light of that day as almost nothing else. Anyway, I've got four points, so I must move on. Uh, the second one, uh, we must be a holy people. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, verse 14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, that is, with God. I remember if you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, 2 Peter is let, uh, written to Christians who've come under the influence of those who are described as scoffers uh, in this chapter. In the previous chapter, as false uh, teachers, they deny the Christian gospel, uh, all the while taking their stipends as Christian preachers. Uh, and so their message uh, is awry. They talk of Jesus, but it's not the apostolic Jesus. And their lifestyle begins to match their failed message. Just as Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Uh, so the uh, right belief is followed by right behavior. Uh, heresy is followed by immorality. That's true in 2 Peter, it's true in our experience, it's true in church history. Well, here in the context of 2 Peter, uh, because we won't go and rehearse all that we did uh, looking at in that previous chapter, that connection is firmly made, and the false teachers are warned, or rather the hearers of Peter's letter, uh, who are in danger of being uh, under the sway of the false teachers, are warned, chapter 2, verse 17, that blackest darkness is reserved for those who twist the gospel away from its biblical and apostolic origins. The destruction of the day of God will bring the destruction of those pseudo-Christian preachers. And by contrast, those who look forward to the day of God are marked not just by confidence, for that may be misplaced, but by holiness, which may be measured In chapter 3, verse 14, the words that Peter chooses to describe holiness as being spotless and blameless is, in the original language, carefully chosen to be the exact opposite of the lifestyle of these false teachers, who, by contrast, were blots and blemishes. In Greek, the same word is used in each case, just in the opposite sense. So to be blameless and spotless, Peter here says, is not to achieve a sinless perfection in this world in order to gain entry into the next. If that were true, Christ would be alone in his new heaven and new earth. The point Peter is making, and that's why I emphasize this point, is to be seen by way of contrast to the false teachers. They were hypocrites. They preached Christ, but they indulged themselves. There was no sincerity uh, in their Christian profession. It was all talk. Perhaps you remember if you were here uh, three weeks ago, I think it was, uh, when we looked at uh, chapter 2 in its entirety. Uh, We thought about how to spot the false teachers. They despised biblical authority. They preached a religion without repentance. They were popular preachers because they told people what they wanted to hear. And in the end, by those uh, outward signs, they revealed themselves uh, to be those who had turned their backs on Jesus Christ. And so Peter is saying to us uh, when he says, uh, you must make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. He's saying, don't be hypocrites. 
Don't justify uh, your sins. Don't set your moral compass uh, by what the culture around you says is good and right. I rather, in all your ongoing fears and failings as a disciple of Jesus Christ, look to him every day for his mercy and look to him every day as your Lord. It isn't about being perfect, but it is about not resting in hypocrisy not being comfortable with the sins that engulf us, not simply looking to the world around and saying, well, they say it's all right, so therefore we can get away with it too. The description in uh, 2 Peter 2, which again we won't go through again uh, its entirety, uh, describes uh, people who were very contemporary to our day. They were experts in greed. They were eyes full of adultery. Our culture is not the first to be saturated in materialism. And even before Google put pornography uh, a click away from every house in the land, uh, there was still that unrestrained lust that controlled uh, the heart of a man or woman who was not humbling themselves before Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we won't fall or fail in those ways. It means when we do, we will not justify it or rest in it. Rather, we will turn again to Christ seek his mercy, and seek his fresh power that we may live with him as our Lord. Make every effort implies that there is work for us to do, a work that will be incomplete when the day of God comes, but a work that must be done if we are among those who are to be found at peace with him. As someone has once said, grace is the opposite of works. My salvation is entirely of God in his grace. But grace is not the opposite of effort. That is, when we've trusted Jesus Christ for our salvation, our daily calling is to pick ourselves up, to follow Christ, to put our sins to death, and to be determined today uh, that we will follow him as our Lord, even at the end of the day. We must say, Lord, have mercy, because I've mucked it up again. You see how easy it is to uh, go off the rails in one direction or the other. Uh, The one way leads to despair. We will always be sinners until the day of God. The other way leads to complacency. We'll always be sinners, so why bother trying to resist? Uh, The gospel says we have peace with God because Christ has died for us. And because we have peace with God, we must make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Friends, uh, our Christian life is not to be marked uh, by an easy accommodation to our own inclinations or our surrounding culture. It is to be marked by daily warfare against our own sins uh, that are provoked from within us and stimulated from outside. As the author of the Hebrews puts it, We strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Third, we are to be a listening people. We are to strive to submit to God's word written. Verses 15 and 16 are quite uh, unique in the New Testament in the way that one apostle refers to another. And these verses uh, have been a hot uh, bed of debate and uh, uh, division over the years. Uh, But actually, I think they're quite clear. The first thing that's clear here uh, is that God uh, is the author of the letters that bear the names of the apostles of Christ 
in the New Testament. I've made that point before, but I'll make it again. I'll make it again because we keep hearing it. Oh, Jesus said that, but that's important. But Paul said that, well, he's only a man, so we don't have to listen to him that seriously. If Jesus didn't say it and only Paul said it, well, then somehow it's negotiable. Look at what Peter actually says. Our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Not with the wisdom he found in the world or in himself. No, when Paul writes his letters or when Peter writes his letters, they come with their primary author as God himself. It's his wisdom and his message that we have here. Paul uh, writes, Peter says, in the same way. Uh, In other words, there is an apostolic unity. Scholars love to write PhDs on uh, Peter's gospel was this and Paul's gospel was that and John's gospel was this. It's nonsense. He writes the same way in all his letters. Uh, Our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you. Uh, There is a unity of the apostolic message because there's a unity of the author of the apostolic message, the God who gave this word to them. And most extraordinary of all, bearing bearing in mind this was in the lifetime of uh, Peter and Paul uh, themselves, that little phrase in verse 16, uh, the other scriptures, the scriptures were the the books of what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, uh, an established canon uh, by the first century uh, of the the words that God had spoken. Jesus was clear about that. Uh, It was a a mainstay of Jewish uh, faith. Well, now Peter quite effortlessly is putting Paul's letters alongside the other scriptures. So even as it's in the process of being written, what we would call the New Testament is already being described as scripture. There is only one Bible, Old and New Testaments, coming from the pen, ultimately, of God himself. Those things uh, may seem... Strange to emphasize here, you'll never hear anything different from this pulpit, Uh, or if you do, it'll be the last time that man ever comes and stands in here. Uh, But open your ears in the debates in the wider church, and you will hear these things all the time. The bishop who infamously said at the last but one Lambeth conference, the church wrote the Bible so the church can rewrite the Bible. That doesn't square with what Peter says here, does it? God is the author of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And what do we learn about the scriptures here? Uh, Well, uh, we learn here uh, that it comes from God. It also is God's warning to us to be ready for that day. And God's promise to us that he is being patient with us so that we might have time to turn to Christ and be ready for that great day when it comes. That's why God spoke his word. There are so many questions. I'd love it if the Bible had answered, but it doesn't. Because it's one message. is the God who made you and from whom you've turned has come in Jesus Christ, will come again on the day of judgment. Trust him now and be forgiven. That day may bring a great homecoming and not your everlasting loss. That's the one message of all 66 books of the Bible. It really is not interested uh, in specific predictions of which nations will rise uh, here and there or the particular questions we may have uh, in detail about how exactly the world was created. It's not that it doesn't touch on those things, but it's not the heart of its message. 
It's a rescue book. It's like the instructions you read beside the life uh, vest at a, uh, at, on a pier or the instructions you read on a fire extinguisher. It's meant to say simply to you, this is what to do to be rescued. Get that right and get that message clear. And don't you worry too much about the rest. The reality is the false teachers both then and now quickly distort Paul's writings as all of the scriptures to their own destruction. They want to make a huge deal of what the Bible says is a small thing or they want to make unclear what the Bible is very clear about because that will help them gain a wider hearing in the world and whatever its particular obsessions are in this day and age. Now listen to clear Bible teaching and hear the main message of the Bible. And if you do that, well, then you'll be ready for the day when it comes. Ah, it is a simple message. Uh, It is also a profound message. God could have given us a one-sentence paragraph like on a fire extinguisher, but he didn't. He gave us a book, 66 books. And some things in there are hard to understand. Isn't that an encouraging phrase? I think I mentioned it when we were going through Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, and some of you told me how much your minds were hurting uh, as we uh, looked at those grand themes in that wonderful letter. Some things in the Bible are hard to understand. So what do we do? Do we give up? Do we just swim around in the shallow waters? Well, no, we don't. We come and sit under Bible teaching. We join small groups where we encourage one another. We read the Bible ourselves every day, that over the decades and collectively, we may find that more of those mysteries become plain. Not all of them, ever. Some things will remain hard to understand until the end. We give ourselves to being a listening people, not in order that we may master the Bible, but rather that its author may master us, that we may be humble and contrite believers who tremble at the word of God. Friends, we need to be a listening people, submitting to God's word written. And finally, and this is a conclusion really to the whole letter, a growing people, a growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. I think this is the thing uh, that has struck me above all uh, looking at this letter with you over the last couple of months. Let me illustrate it by way of a story. And I was at school uh, in my late teens, Uh, I was sailing a dinghy uh, one day. We had a reservoir quite near our school. This was a school in England I finished off my education uh, at. And I'd got in the boat uh, full of confidence, but with very little ground for my confidence. And uh, I was sat there. It was a relatively calm day, but there was a little wind. And uh, anyway, I thought I'd uh, mastered the art of uh, sailing. And uh, we set off, my companion and I. We got halfway uh, across the reservoir. And I don't know what I did, but the boat stopped. Now, when the boat stopped, the other thing I didn't understand about was self-bailers. If you've ever uh, come across a self-bailer, if you're uh, a sailor. uh, But a self-bailer is a wonderful little device that you pop down when you're making rapid progress uh, forwards. And the water is sucked out of the bottom of the boat, leaving it nice and dry. But if the boat stops, as it did for me, then... Uh, scientific reality is that the water will flow in very fast through the self-bailer and the boat will sink. I didn't know you were meant to shut the self-bailer when you'd become becalmed. 
I didn't know how to make my boat start moving again because I don't think I'd learnt much about jibing. Anyway, the point was, if we were not making forward progress, we were sinking. Uh, and we sank on that day. Uh, so there we go. It was uh, not a happy end to my sailing expedition. Uh, friends, it's the same in the Christian life. Those are the two options. We are either making forward progress or we are sinking. And yet so many of us labor under the false impression that if we become Christians, then actually the rest of our lives may be lived in relative ease, as it were, sitting on the sailing boat in the glorious sunshine, becalmed and simply devoting ourselves to whatever takes our pleasure. That's not the pattern that Peter has It's not the teaching of his letter. Uh, We are either growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which means making every effort to be found blotless and uh, at peace with him, or we're sinking. And actually what we imagine to be a pleasant day in the summer sun uh, may actually be our faith beginning to wither on the vine, grow cold, and take us to the bottom of the reservoir. Those false teachers found a ready hearing among those who were overconfident in their present position, but who actually had long ago given up any sense that being a Christian meant the hard work of daily growing in godliness, of persevering in prayer, of actually holding out the word of life to others, of sacrificing ourselves in order to love others at a way that was costly to us. Those are the two choices. If we sit still, well, then we will sink. So which is it for you? Are you sinking or are you growing? I don't ask, are you just sitting? Because that is an illusion. Oh, friends, uh, since you already know this, and Peter is writing to Christians who know these things, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. And what must you do, therefore? Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you discover more of your sins, grow in his grace, for he delights to forgive. As you discover more of the Bible, grow in your knowledge of him. As you do grow in both grace and knowledge, then put it into practice in praying more fruitfully and evangelizing more readily in serving with ever-increasing commitment to those around us, growing or sinking. the Lord's mercy, may we be those who grow in grace and knowledge. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we stand in the light of the coming day of judgment. It's a terrible warning that you've given to us this morning, but a wonderful promise that as we turn to Christ... And trust in him alone, with a faith as precious as the apostles. So that day will be for us a day of homecoming and joy. And so give us confidence in the light of that day, but would you also give us to the work of holiness, that we might make every effort. Please, Lord, would you make us a listening people. Do not quibble with your word, but sit under it we may truly grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and above all grow in his grace. It may not be without its effect in our lives. We would be those who are ready when he comes. Amen.